Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. So a few hours before we started recording today, I took my family to a baseball game at Target Field here in Minneapolis, saw the Twins in Cleveland. Are they the like, Crusaders now? The, the, or like the, the Guardians, right? The Guardians? They really blew it because everybody thought they yeah. were going to be the Spiders, which sounded like a great name, but now the, the Guardians is what they went with, which is nowhere near as good. They could have been like the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fames. That could have been a good name. The Cleveland Guitars. <laughs> but uh, took my kids to their first baseball game, uh, nine and five, and you know they hung in pretty good. It was funny because you know I was there on dad duty, and it's the first time I think ever, well maybe since I've been an adult, that I went to a baseball game and didn't uh, have a beer. Wow, not even one. No, I was just drinking soda there. Okay. You know, I was I was super dry. And I noticed that if you're not partying at a baseball game, it's kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. A little bit boring. Yeah. Especially if, if you're with two kids who by who by the fifth inning are like literally crawling all over each other. Right. In, in boredom. But, you know, it was a good time. It was a beautiful sunny day. Baseball, it's a great hangout sport. Yeah. And uh, I feel like we have to shout out Twins manager Rocco Baldelli, yeah, who's a deadhead and a fish fan. Yeah, I suspect he may have listened to this podcast. Well, he follows me. Yeah, does he follow you. He does follow me. If you're listening, Rocco, thank you, thank you for listening, Rocco. And uh, you know, again, when I was saying it was kind of boring, you know, just because I was with two kids. You know, if I was with, there with a friend, it'd be a lot more exciting. So, Rocco, no shots taken there. Yeah. But it got me thinking when I was at the game. And by the way, I don't, I can't confirm this as as a fact, but when I was walking into the stadium, I'm pretty sure I heard Scarlet Begonias. Okay, yeah, so I was going to ask this, because somebody sent this to us. I'm, I'm sorry I'm blanking on the name. I'm, not, I'm never going to find it on Twitter. It was a while ago. It was the walk-up music or warm-up music for all the Minnesota Twins. 
And there was ah. a, a relief pitcher who I had never heard of before who picked Fire on the Mountain. And the, the guy who tweeted at us said you should get him on the show. And I said, clearly that guy was just sucking up to Rocco Baldelli <laughs> by yeah. picking a dead song. Uh, but works. still cool. At least he picked, like, you know, he didn't pick, you know, a touch of gray or something really obvious. Fire on the Mountain, you're, you're digging a little deeper. That's a, a deeper cut. See, I swear it was Scarlet. Okay. But it might have been fire. But anyway, I mean, because I, I was like in the bowels of the stadium walking up to our seats and there was some sort of jam bandy group going on. But it got me thinking about how I feel like there there's a crossover of jam band fans and baseball fans. Yeah, oh yeah. Like on jam band Twitter, I feel like a lot of the people there are baseball fans. And it makes sense to me because, okay, so you have every game's three hours. And a lot of meandering going on in baseball. Mm. You know, definitely not a straight line. It's a very stat-obsessed sport. Oh, yeah. You know, the, like the most stat-obsessed. You know, cause, like the long, illustrious history of baseball. And there's also, in baseball, and maybe like, this is less true now. This is like more of like an historical thing. But there's like lots of hairy guys with bad bodies <laughs> in baseball. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Like, like you don't have to be a great athlete to be a great baseball player. I mean, you know, going back to Babe Ruth being the ultimate example. If you just have the skill of being able to hit a baseball, right. you can play forever and be kind of fat. And it makes baseball players more human in a lot of ways, more and more relatable. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, you got a lot of like relief pitchers, especially who have kind of like a wookish vibe to them, right? They come out with like the long, wet hair. They've got weird facial hair. Look like they haven't showered in a while. Have you ever read the David Gans essay? Grateful Dead concerts are like baseball games. No, I haven't, but that makes sense. You had a, a, a moment of convergence theorizing there. I, I looked it up. It was way back in 1983 he wrote this. So like the dead were still, you know, very much a going concern at the time. But yeah, it made the same points. Like uh, no games are the same. People fixate on the stats. People have their favorite years like when the dead won the pennant sort of thing that they always go back to and remember fondly in the years that they don't like to think about. So, yeah, I think there's absolutely something there. Do you do you keep score at a baseball game? You probably didn't with your kids, but if you weren't with the kids. Well, it's funny. When I was in middle school, I kept I was I was paid $10 a game to keep score for the local Babe Ruth League. Okay. I don't know why they needed someone to keep score. <laughs> I, I just like want to know like if someone compiled the stats for Babe Ruth teams in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1992. Like if those are still on record somewhere because I, I was in effect the taper yeah. for those shows. I was helping to preserve them for uh, <laughs> posterity back then. But no, I'm not, I'm not like a huge baseball fan personally. Right. I like going to the ballpark. I like hanging out. When I lived in Milwaukee, I was a pretty big baseball fan because the Brewers in those years, they had a really fun team. And I also didn't have kids. Mm. And it, it's easier to follow baseball when you don't have much of a life, you right. know? Because it's such an immersive sport. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I grew up near Green Bay, so I'm still a big Packers fan. That's like once a week. It's like a pretty easy right. thing to stay connected to. Yeah, yeah. The baseball jam band thing, obviously, that's been remarked upon in the past. Has anyone delved into the jam band minor league hockey connection? <laughs> or, or is that a few? of scholarship that we are pioneering here it's very possible i i have not searched it up we can we can lay claim to that i feel like i i totally agree with you and david gans on the, the grateful dead or like baseball games thing i would also argue and this is a little bit more of like a 21st century sports fan argument that grateful dead shows are like soccer games it's a little bit of a backhanded comparison because i think you know a lot of people watch soccer 
and they don't see a lot of goals. They don't really comprehend what's going on, and they think it's boring. The criticism of jam band shows is just being noodling, just being people playing solos and never playing songs is similar to somebody going to a soccer game cold and just thinking that they're passing the ball around, like nothing's happening. They're just, you know, working sideways and not, there's no action. Whereas if you go to a lot of soccer games, watch a lot of soccer, eventually you start to see the dynamics at play. And there's a lot of group dynamics, a lot of improvisation in soccer that I think goes with, you know, jam bands, with the Grateful Dead. Very similar comparison where I'm going to talk about this a lot today, I think. There's not particularly like one superstar leader that is driving the ship. You have a lot of contributions from people all at the same time that add up to something, you know, bigger than the individual parts. So I, I got to work on it a little bit. Not quite essay form yet. But I would, say, I would argue that Grateful Dead concerts are also like soccer in that way. Soccer games are pretty tight two hours, though, aren't they? It's or true. Do- there is a time limit on soccer games. So that's where I guess maybe it doesn't hold up as well. And, you know, like somebody, Bill Walton, would probably say, make all the same arguments and say it's like a basketball game. But basketball games are too fast. Too fast-paced. Yeah. Yeah, basketball games are like punk shows compared to uh, this sort of meandering quality that you get. Man. Are we getting too jockish on this show? <laughs> have, we, have we just crossed the Rubicon here? We're I, pivoting I, I to sports like, radio. Yeah. And when you were talking before, I was thinking like, is Pele the Jerry Garcia of uh, <laughs> soccer? Possibly. Could be true. Yeah. Could be true. This is 36 from The Vault. My name is Steve. And I'm Rob, here for Dick's Picks, volume 31. Yes, August 4th and 5th, 1974 at the Philadelphia Civic Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And August 6th at the Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey. We got a four-banger here. That's right. Although, breaking recent precedent, this is not complete shows this is a sampler yeah yeah they went back from here and there yeah so a smattering from three different shows weirdly three shows that were on sunday through tuesday i couldn't quite figure this out i kept checking the calendars to make sure this was true but this was a three-night run on probably the worst nights of the week for (laughs) holding a live rock concert but hey 1974 there were just so many concerts going on that you know they had to squeeze them in wherever they could certainly monday and tuesday i mean i feel like if you're playing a sunday night gig take monday off right you know, like why, why are you playing monday <laughs> but i don't know just routing back then they were they were figuring that out right in the 70s can i just say you know we are generally on board with this show i think or this this album mm-hmm. i gotta say like going to the two track here yeah with this record, after the, you know, headphone, what's the word, just like symphony that we've had recently. Yeah. It's a little bit of a whiplash. Yeah. You know, like this album does not sound as good as what we've had served up recently. Yeah. Spoiled by two volumes of Betty Boards in a row. 
And uh, this is a, a very pure example of why nobody ran a soundboard like Betty Cantor. Because we got Kid yes. Candelario on the board to the show, as he is for a lot of these 73, 74 Dead releases. Kid Candelario did an amazing job. Thank God he was rolling tape on all these shows, and we have them to listen back to. But uh, the Betty tape's so warm, so lush, like sitting in a big fluffy blanket listening to the Dead. This one is a little, uh, I don't know, icier, a little thinner. I don't know, sharper edged, I would say. Yeah, you know, I had to laugh. You know, looking at the CD, the caveat emptor that is always on the back of, of the disc, and it apologizes for the over-exuberant piano sounds. Yeah. So they're actually saying, hey, Keith is a little too loud uh, on this <laughs> album, and I feel like we've spent many episodes lamenting that Keith is not loud enough. Yeah. The fact that they felt the need to apologize right. for Keith's prominence here, I thought was really funny. Did you even notice any time that he was, like absurdly loud no not at all that was another <laughs> weird thing i mean yeah. you can hear keith and, and there's some awesome keith moments as there always are during this era of the dead but yeah it wasn't like oh he's drowning out the guitars or no. anything like that he sounded like he was properly mixed for like the first time and well he wasn't in all 30 previous volumes but Certainly, like twenty of them. <laughs> so yeah. it was like we're sorry for mixing our keyboard player so that he was audible for the first exactly. time ever. Yeah, very strange. Maybe it was a joke. Maybe they knew what they were doing when they put that in. Maybe there. so, but we're very pro overly exuberant piano sounds <laughs> yeah, on, exactly. on the show. So we're happy to hear that. Before we dive into this album and everything about it, we want to delve into our mailbag. Thank you again to everyone that writes us. Always great to hear from our listeners. You all are so nice. It's it's so nice for us to know that people are actually listening to the show, that Rob and I aren't just mumbling into the ether here. <laughs> so, so thank you for writing in. Our first letter comes from Brian in Hudson, Ohio, and, and I'll read this one. He says, just listen to episode 30. And I've listened to all of them. One comment, the Grateful Dead as a backing band, you mentioned a few times when they played as a backing band. And just to pause here for a second, as you might remember in Dick's Picks 30, The Dead, on the first disc, they back up Bo Diddley, and it's really cool. And we were talking in that episode about other instances where the Grateful Dead were a backing band for another musician. And Brian points out that the other significant time that they were a backing band was in the studio for David Bromberg's Wanted Dead or Alive, which he notes was the band except Bob, Mickey, and Donna. Very underrated album. Not a lot of the stories on the internet about the session. Looking forward to Dick's Picks 31. My first show was 8574. Wow. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome, Brian. I remember blogging with Dick back on Deadnet before the show came out. He really liked this China writer. It made a special comment that this version had to see the light of day. Very interesting tidbit All there. Right, we've got Brian. some Thank inside you. info. Nice. So I don't know. Like, have you have you delved? Much into the David Bromberg <laughs> discography. I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever heard of David Bromberg. <laughs> Did you know who David Bromberg is? Yeah, I, I know the name. I haven't. I don't go deep with him at all. But yeah, I, I know the name. He's like you know, like a multi instrumentalist. He's very eclectic. You know, as you would expect from an artist who's tangentially related to the dead rock, folk, blues, bluegrass. He's all over the map musically, and I hadn't 
really heard this album before Brian mentioned it in this letter, but I was checking it out before we, we recorded today, and it's a pretty cool record. The first track on the album is called The Hold Up, and it's like co-written by George Harrison, which wow. is like, you know, shows Bromberg was pretty well connected. It's also a cover of a Bob Dylan song called Wallflower, which is a, it was an outtake at the time that this album was recorded. It was later released on the Bootleg Series, Volumes 1 through 3, the, the introduction of the Bootleg Series that came out, I think that was 91. This album came out in 1974, yeah. early 74. So we're talking like the same era of the dead that uh, we're, we're going to be talking about today in the Dick's Picks. Yeah, like the, the record dropped in January of 74, so presumably recorded in 73. Yeah. But yeah, an apropos reference that Brian is making here. Also, I should mention that on the topic of the dead backing up other musicians, this was something that came up on our Twitter a lot after Dick's Picks 30, that episode, is that the dead backed up John Fogarty right. at a show in 1989. That's the the Bill Graham Memorial, right? I, we, yeah. We blanked on that one, yeah. Which is an interesting thing because, you know, the CCR, Grateful Dead, Woodstock thing, where Fogarty later said he, he, he felt like the dead sabotage ccr <laughs> right i think he had maybe some tongue-in-cheek when he said that but like the dead you know they played not a very good set and it went on for a long time and i think ccr went on after the dead yeah they had a lot of technical difficulties the dead did as with everybody at woodstock i think ccr went on several hours later than they expected i think they went on at like one in the morning i want to say and played an, played an awesome set like blew the dead out of the water at Woodstock, to be honest. So shouldn't have felt sabotaged at all. They just teed him up for like one of the best and maybe underappreciated until it all it came out. Woodstock yeah. sets, yeah, yeah, that's a great album. So yeah, I was just looking uh, looking up more of Fogarty Dead crossover. Maybe this is the one they're referring to. I'm, I might be getting them mixed up, but there was a May 1989 show where Fogarty's band was Bob and Jerry, Randy Jackson on bass. American Idol's Randy Jackson. Journey's Randy Jackson. Uh, Steve Jordan was on drums. The the Stones drummer now, right? And Randy Jackson later played with Springsteen during his uh, Human Touch Lucky Town era. Wow. Like he ditched the East Street Band. So, uh, yeah, Jackson. Big history with Randy. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, th- I think there's a couple instances like where Fogarty and the Dead cross paths. Obviously, they're from the San Francisco music scene of the late 1960s. So there would definitely be some crossover there. So yeah, always good to mention the king of of Chugal on this show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, shout out to John Fogarty. Do you want to read our second letter? Sure, I'll take this one from Jamie in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, Wilmington, we, we were talking about our stock comments about every city. I have nothing to say about either Hudson, Ohio, or Wilmington, North Carolina. We're get, we're get, we're getting out of the big cities now. I like that. I love North Carolina generally. The cities I've been to, like like Raleigh and uh, Asheville, beautiful state. Yeah. Love North Carolina. So Jamie says, I've enjoyed every episode of 36 from the Vault and each corresponding volume of Dick's Picks along the way, despite having never listened to the Dick's Picks series before you guys came along. Oh, excellent, Jamie. I love the pod and I'm going to miss it when it's gone. That said, what are the greatest non-Dick's Picks live dead releases? I'm familiar with what I perceive to be the big ones. Needless, Cornell 77, Veneta 72, Europe 72, Live Dead without a net. But I'm sure I'm missing out, especially from that 73-74 sweet spot. Would love to hear your shortlist. It could even be a way of extending your run beyond 36 volumes or episodes. Just a thought. Thanks for the trip, Jamie and Wilmington. Yeah, so yeah, you mentioned a lot of the big ones. I mean, I would also mention the pre-Dix Picks 
live albums and mm. the post Dick's Picks albums, or maybe even like pre and post, like like the From the Vault albums, right? Because you know, along with the ones you mentioned, there's like Skull and Roses, you know, the self-titled Grateful Dead record. There's Reckoning, the acoustic record, then Dead Set, which was like from that, like around the same time. You know, like when Grateful Dead live albums, it was more like conventional live albums in a way where they weren't just doing archival releases like several times a year, which is like what you get at this point and what you've had for a long time. Like you mentioned 7374, there's that record that came out a few years ago where it's the Pacific Northwest, 7374. That's where you get like the 46 minute (laughs) playing in the band. Right. I think it's from May of 74. So that's something to check out I, w- I was tweeting about this on our uh, 36 from the vault twitter account and i jokingly attributed it to you i said that you were saying this but it was actually me talking about without a net because i've been on a without a net kick right lately you're just desperate for brent all these uh, well dicks picks with pre-brent era you need some brent your brent fix it's a good palate cleanser like when you're just in the 70s all the time yeah you know like i feel like it's nice to just change it up because as much as i love the 70s it's, i don't know it's just nice to get a different flavor and i'm not gonna say without a net is the best conventional grateful dead live album but i, th- I think it's my favorite because you know europe 72 as great as that album is there are other there's tons of dicks picks from 72 obviously there's there's like other representations of that era that you can listen to and there's other representations of like the dead in 89 which is what without a net is but i just think of that as like such a definitive snapshot of like brent era dead yeah and i i really do think it's the the definitive brent album like it's such a great tribute to him and of course it came out after he passed away so it has extra significance for that reason but i just feel like that era of the dead i just think of that album first mm-hmm. you know and it's so special for that reason so I'm sure we disagree on that. I don't know if you have any feelings about Without a Net at all, but I just love that record so much. And and again, I was like on a recent kick with it. You know, like when they're doing Feel Like a Stranger and like Brent is like, it's going to be a long, 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 crazy tour, crazy tour, crazy tour. I'm like, this is the shit, yeah. man. I love this record so much. Again, we talk so much about 70s Dead, which right. I love 70s Dead, but got to give it up for Without a Net. Such a great record. I'm going to do, uh, assign myself the homework of revisiting without a net for our next episode, since it will be our, our final chance, our goodbye to Brent in the 36 from the vaults series. So I want to make sure I'm fully up on Brent. And since we only have two discs, a, a two banger dick specs next time, I'll have extra listening time to, f- to fill in with some other, some other Brent stuff. So stay tuned for my without a net thoughts. I haven't listened to it in years and years. I, I just wonder to what degree without a net, informed dicks picks in the sense that when they pick brent shows it's all early to mid 80s right there's no late 80s and i mean you had without a net you also had like dose net the nick right obviously the deadheads that had seen the dead that were buying dicks picks they were very likely people that came into the dead into the 80s so they were probably very familiar with late 80s early 90s and maybe there's there just wasn't as much urgency to have th- that era represented in dicks picks but i do think it's a shame i mean because you you know there's like a 1992 show there's obviously some like 91 in here mm-hmm. and it does seem like if you're gonna 
make a criticism of Dick's picks to not have anything from eighty seven to eighty nine. I think is like like a hole in Dick's picks. Yeah, because that's such a because to me like that is the ultimate Brent era. Right. Like right. the early eighties stuff is cool, but like you listen to Without a Net, I'm like this is full on Brent. Right, this is Brent <laughs> in, his, in prime. his prime. Yeah, <laughs> you know, even though he was you know not long for this world. Right. really when those shows were played, I just feel like he's so good on that record, and it's like that should have been represented. At some point on Dick's picks, yeah, yeah, it's funny you bring up Dozen at the Nick because I was going to mention that one. I like partly because of it being the time I was just getting into the Dead. Dick's picks was coming, starting to come out, but they were also releasing so many things like in the years right after Jerry died from the archives, and I was scooping them up like anything that came out. So like Hundred Year Hall was a big Dead Live album for me, which is it was like the first time they had released anything else from the Europe seventy two tour. It's the 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 Frankfurt show. It's got a really long the other one on it. That was really crucial in me hearing, you know, a different side of the dead than I had encountered, I guess, on the official releases so far. And then I liked Dozen at the Nick a lot when it came out. I like can picture the the C D case for that like perfectly and all the art oh, on yeah. that. And uh even though they famously left off the loser from that run, which is considered to be one of Jerry's finest nineties moments. It was a good representation for me of very late Brent era and that spring 1992 or even though that's post without a net is also considered to be a, a late peak for the dead and a, a particularly for brent i think right so oh yeah i think it has i will take you home on it it's also got a mind left body jam it's got like a bunch of sort of weird stuff that you know i really appreciated when i was first setting out to learn about the dead i you know went through all the stuff that they've released and there are things that i just do not remember coming out at all so at some point i just lost track like i did not buy postcards of the hanging which i think is there like here's a compilation of the dead playing dylan i love that record yeah is that I, cool I, yeah. I have that record i love i mean i i mean again i've said this on the show but like jerry is my favorite interpreter of bob dylan right songs, yeah you know and he and he really did that with jgb because like with the dead like bob sings a, a fair amount of the dylan covers so it, it's not just jerry but i really like that a lot yeah. I, I i i love the dead covering dylan well, I feel like we're already talking a lot about Brent. I guess we're going to have to table that for our next episode. <laughs> he'll, he'll bring some over-exuberant piano sounds. Maybe not piano. He'll bring over-exuberant sounds to the next volume. <laughs> In 82, though, 82, like, not as much. He's, like, pretty late, you know, compared to what he's going to be later in the 80s. Yeah. He's, like, way more restrained, which I think is, like, to the detriment. Like, I, I again, I don't want to just keep talking about without a net, but, like, when... <laughs> Just like the thunderous like synths at the beginning of Feel Like a Stranger. It's like, I just love that. Right. I get, I get so hyped when I hear that. But let's set the scene here for Dick's Picks 31. It's August of 74. Yeah. A momentous time in American history. And we're going to be talking about this throughout the episode. Basically, the end of the Nixon White House coincides with these shows. I right. Mean, Richard Nixon in the throes of Watergate. He announced his resignation on August 8th of 74, and then he actually resigned, like, officially on the 9th. I think he actually admitted on the 5th that he participated in the cover-up of the Watergate break-in. So, okay. like, right in the middle of these shows. Right. Well, that was what I was wondering was, like, how much was his resignation a surprise and like would this weekend have been like 
what did it was the buzz already in the air that like the Nixon era was over? It was just a matter no, of time. I think people knew. I mean, because this was like people were glued to it. I don't know if you heard that podcast that was done about the the Nixon thing. What was that? I think it was called Fiasco. Hmm. No, I haven't heard that about Watergate, which is like a really great. I only listen to jam band podcasts. Yeah, I mean, but again, like you know, like we're, we're in Bernstein. We're reporting on this for like two years leading up to all this thing, and right. then Nixon again, like on the fifth, like he admitted, like, oh yeah, I, I'm guilty. Yeah, and then. You know, well, that makes sense. The die was cast. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't. There's no references to it on the stick specs. Well, they played "He's Gone" in one of these shows. So, like, do we want to speculate? Yeah, it could be that it could be. Could Bob doesn't say like that he read in his almanac that uh, <laughs> Richard Nixon was guilty. Well, I did. I listened to uh, the entire August sixth show, and it opens with Bertha, and then after Bertha, Bob is getting chatty. And he says, the weatherman said the chances of rain today are near zero. And I think that was a reference. This show may have been moved, which is probably why it was on a Tuesday. I think it got rained out the week before and got moved to this date. So everybody cheers that there's no rain in the forecast. And then he says, but that wasn't the only news that came out today. And I was all ready for him to say something about Nixon. Uh, And then he just leaves it at that and everybody cheers. And so I think that's, I imagine that's what he was referring to. But Uh. they just didn't say anything explicitly about it the dead are as always mysterious on their politics uh i mean they're clearly not pro nixon but they were not gonna give a lecture on corruption in government and (laughs) nixon getting his comeuppance did bobby play looks like rain after saying that uh, there's no rain today did he do like a look like a looks like rain type thing no 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 no. he played mexicali blues (laughs) uh clearly uh nixon commentary and allegory i don't know but yeah that was the closest i could find so yeah i imagine it was just like the the recent example that comes to mind is the weekend they finally declared the election for biden over trump and how everybody was just like out and having a great time and like it felt like 100 pounds had been lifted off our shoulders and like i imagine that's what these shows were like like people were in a party mood because the national nightmare was over and nixon was on his way out and you know for once a politician actually suffered consequences for their their actions a fantastic to see that we can only uh, dream about today in the documentaries about the 70s though that's always that like watergate was the beginning of our great disillusionment with the world so that maybe people back then didn't think that politicians were ever crooked and that this was the beginning (laughs) of them realizing that i don't know yeah it doesn't seem like that doesn't seem very plausible to me but in terms of the dead obviously we are in the middle of the wall of sound era right i know that you have a lot of affection for the wall of sound i mean we've talked about the wall of sound in previous previous 74 episodes so i don't know how much we want to review the particulars of like what the dead were going through at this time but like basically we know that the dead are heading toward a hiatus right at the end of 74 and it's driven by and large by just the extreme expense and impracticality of this epic sound system that they have, along with the Grateful Dead movie, you know, dealing with that, this, the financial draining of, of that project. And it's interesting to speculate on to what degree this was affecting their playing, because I think you and I both like this album, but would you agree that the Dead sound at times like a little exhausted? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, you know, you were mentioning the whiplash of the sound earlier. And we've talked a lot about Whiplash when a Dick's Picks jumps from like 
68 to 92 or something something insane where it's just a completely different band this one is almost like an anti-whiplash because you i like between volume 30 and volume 31 you're capturing sort of two bookends of a chapter in the grateful dead and like 30 we talked a lot about how the band just sounds so excited so loose so happy they've got all these new songs everything sounds really fresh they're about to go to europe Everything's just really crackling and popping, and they sound full of energy. This is only, you know, two years later, two and a half years later. You know, like a lot of periods in Dead, the sound has changed a lot, but there's a little bit of a malaise <laughs> over the band, I feel like. Like, it, that comes across. And I don't mean that entirely negatively. Like, I think it definitely works in the music's favor. Like, it's hard to tell. I wrote somewhere in the notes that it's hard to tell if they're tired or relaxed. And they're probably both. And there's times where the relaxed vibes you're getting from the band at this point really add a lot to the music and there's other songs where you're like yeah we just heard like a really awesome like rip roar and fast-paced version of this song and now we're hearing it sounds like they're a little sick of playing it maybe or they're just kind of like the spark's not there anymore so it's funny because 74 you know has been built up so much lately as like a peak era of the dead but i do think that there are some signs that they definitely needed a break and i think you know it's not too much speculation to say but most of the band i think was ready to, to take take some time off and you can hear it a little bit well, I think even like with 74, it's not just one year. It's like parts of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Dave's picks 42 shipped while we were researching this episode, listening to Dick's picks 31. And Dave's picks 42 is February of 74. And I feel like those shows are different than these shows. Mm-hmm. And I think they are a little more focused and energetic at that time and you know we were talking about that pacific northwest compilation that came out that's of 73 and 74 all the 74 stuff is from the spring Mm. you know it's from like april and may i think so i think maybe there's a change even from like earlier in 74 to like where we are getting into this part i mean we did have a dick's picks from i think that was september of 74 when they were in uh, europe yeah just to stick a pin in exactly when these shows happen these are the last three shows of the u.s summer tour they take a few weeks off and they go to europe they play a couple weeks of shows in europe which is dick's pick seven the london shows then they come back and they do the farewell quote-unquote run at winterland and then they're done so we are really catching them at the end of the summer it always shocks me too how few shows they played in 74 given how large it looms in dead history there was basically a summer tour that went from may 12th in reno through jersey city the last of the shows in this volume so that's you know three months almost yeah three solid months summer tour so you think there must be a ton of shows there's only 23 shows though and i think it has to do with just the logistics of moving the wall of sound around they had to take off days just to like transport it and set it up i i actually don't know how they were managed to play three nights in a row for this set like because i thought that it basically took a minimum of an entire day to break down the wall of sound move it somewhere else and build it up again so somehow they made it happen between philadelphia and jersey city but yeah they didn't play a lot of shows and you know all the grateful dead biographies have various stories about the band just feeling tired (laughs) tired of the road tired of this huge operation that had built up around them feeling like they needed to slim down and and start start fresh i guess so uh i think you're i think some of that comes across here yeah like i said it's not a total bad thing but it, it's it's something that's hanging in the background well let's talk about the venues we're going to be visiting in this dick's picks uh, the first one philadelphia civic center in philadelphia pennsylvania 
Built in 1931, closed in 96, demolished in 05. This is where the Sixers originally played. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, because I, I think like by the 80s, they were already playing at the Spectrum. So I, I, I yeah. wonder like when they... 70s even, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were uh, dead shows at the Spectrum in the 70s. Yeah. And I, and I know that from the recent HBO show Winning Time, that when <laughs> oh, okay. the Lakers played the Sixers in, in the 1980 NBA Finals, it was at the Spectrum. Yeah. That was the home venue for the Sixers at that time. So I think the Civic Center was where you played if the Spectrum was booked, essentially, in the 70s and the 80s. So the dead didn't get on the Spectrum calendar uh, <laughs> early enough. Maybe the Spectrum wasn't open in 74. I meant to look that up, but it did not. But anyway, the Civic Center does not sound as nice of a place. I mean, the Spectrum is pretty legendary for concerts, but it was like a basketball arena, right? It couldn't have been that. Yeah, and it, and they definitely became a place for, you know, again, minor league hockey was there. They had pro wrestling there. It it definitely conforms to something we talk about a lot on the show, where jam band concert venues tend to be sort of second tier places, mm-hmm. even like when you're in big cities. I mean, obviously, Madison Square Garden is the exception to that, but you know, with even in like in a city like Philadelphia, again, I guess the Civic Center maybe at this time, if the Spectrum wasn't open yet, I mean, it was still like a pretty old venue. It was like over fifty years old. It was over forty right. years old uh, yeah. in 1974. These were also uh, indoor shows in August in a building that was built in 1931. Yes. So I'm imagining people were uh, roasting inside the Philadelphia Civic Center. Probably doesn't sound like the most pleasant place to spend uh, a hot August night. With, with a bunch of, like, you know, drunken Philadelphians, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. it, was, it was a heady atmosphere. The usually well-behaved Philadelphia crowd. One other basketball team that played at the Civic Center that I want to point out, because I feel like this is a million-dollar, or at least like a thousand-dollar idea for somebody out there. Uh, There was a basketball team called the Philadelphia Tapers that were sponsored by the Technical Tape Corporation, which made like both uh, sticky tape and recording tape. Uh, I think they played for one year. But if you look online, there is a basketball jersey that just says tapers Ah. across the chest. So if you need an idea for the lot this summer, I think you still got some time to print up a run of tapers basketball jerseys. Either Dead & Company or Fish Tour or Jam Band of your choice. That would sell like hotcakes. So if nobody else takes us up on it, I'm bringing them to Alpine, Steve. We're going to be hawking them out of the back of my car at Alpine Valley. So overall, the Dead played five shows here. They played these two shows in 74, and then they returned 10 years later in April of 84. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. those were supremely sleazy shows. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I thought. That would yeah. have, have been good. Our second venue in Jersey City, New Jersey, Roosevelt Stadium, built in 1937. Is Roosevelt Stadium still functional? No, it's gone. Uh, I believe they knocked it down in 1985, in fact, I have here in the notes. So it didn't last, yeah, it was a minor league baseball stadium for the New York Giants minor league team before they moved. Baseball history, since we had a baseball conversation up top, the first, like, recorded baseball game was played in Hoboken, just down the road from Jersey City. Some baseball history there, and then uh, Jackie Robinson's first professional game was played at Roosevelt Stadium. Ah, because he started in the minors. That's where his team debuted. So I don't think they played a lot. I don't think there were a lot of concerts there, but for some reason, the Dead played there a lot. They played there six times in the 70s. It was like their New York stop for the early 70s. Two shows in 72, two shows in 73, then this show, and then another one in 1976, uh, which is actually on YouTube. You can watch the 1976 show on black and white camera. 
it has like a pretty big capacity. I mean, it like maxes out around 40,000 people. Like I wonder how many people showed up to this show. Because it was the only sort of New York area show, I bet it pulled a lot. Uh, that 73 show was right after the uh, Watkins Glen Festival, I think the next weekend. Probably got a lot of runoff from that show. You know, because the Dead became like a stadium band at the end. It's it's funny that they played these sort of like mini stadium shows in the 70s. Because th- they played it in San Francisco. There was the Kazar Stadium, right? Right. Which uh, it was, was like an old football stadium. So even, you know, 20 years before Touch Grey launched them into the uh, stadium circuit, they actually you know, played some of these giant venues. I don't know. I guess there wasn't anything else in New York, really, that kind of fit their scene. Like, there's not, like, a big... I don't know, it was, like, Jones Beach open back then? Like, what? where would people play in New York if they weren't playing Madison Square Garden or Nassau? I'm a Midwestern dude, man. I have no clue. <laughs> but, you know, in the summertime, playing outdoor gig, I mean, you know, it seems like that would have been a good place. Yeah, this seems like a much more pleasant atmosphere than uh, the Philadelphia Civic Center <laughs> in the, the heat of August. Though we will hear some uh, Bobby banter about people getting... Getting a little rowdy. Yeah, getting rowdy. Bobby gets pissed. <laughs> yeah. He gets pissed at one crucial moment in the show. We which... get cop cop Bobby instead of cop Phil <laughs> and upset. <laughs> he, he's more like uh, sort of like cop doesn't play up by the rules, though. Like He's getting angry. He's like not respectful. <laughs> he's like the Mel Gibson uh, lethal weapon cop. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's set the scene here in terms of what was happening in pop culture at the time of the show. The number one song in America in early August of 74, Feel Like Making Love by Roberta Flack, not by Bad Company, who like would have no. also had a Feel Like Making Love. I think that was 74 when their first record dropped. <laughs> there were two songs called Feel Like Making Love? It's 74, baby. 74? People it felt, was a horny year, I guess. Yeah, they felt like making love. Watergate was getting everybody... Hot in their pants, I guess. Post-60s, you still have the sexual revolution going on. Right. You could still have a song called Feel Like Making Love <laughs> by multiple people. and I mean, it's not, the, <laughs> it's not the same song. It's just like a song. I don't think it is, right? That Roberta Flack song? I don't, yeah, I don't, it's a totally different song, yeah. A totally different song, but, you know, it's a flexible concept to say that you feel like making <laughs> yeah, exactly. love. Uh, other big songs from this period, The Night Chicago Died, which is by Paper right. Lace, I believe is the artist. <laughs> of course, yeah, Paper Lace. John Denver's Amy song, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me by Elton John, Chicago, Call on Me, Abba Waterloo. So, you know, like a very 70s AM gold era. For sure, yeah. You skipped over Jim Stafford's Wildwood Weed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, country song that is just basically uh, somebody telling a joke about pot. Right. <laughs> and yet it was a hit single. Oh, yeah. That was the thing. You know, that's just like uh, New Writers of the Purple Sage, who had the sure. song Panama Red. I think Panama yeah. Red was yeah. around this period. Panama Red. Panama Red. Yeah. I think it's something like that. Or like the uh, whoever did the Lakeshore Drive song. It was just an excuse to talk about how they were on LSD. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Number one album, John Denver, Back Home Again. Yeah. JD. This is Denver Mania. 1974, apparently. And again, I mean, we told the story before, but there's that famous story about Jerry Garcia running into John Denver at some airport, and all John Denver had was a guitar, because he was doing a tour with, uh, he would go to each town and play with their local orchestra, and Garcia was like, holy shit, why do we have all this, like, fucking wall of sound stuff? (laughs) Right. Just be like John Denver. So John Denver influencing the Grateful Dead. Never let it be forgotten. Right. He broke up the dead. Temporarily. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> other big albums the one that popped out to me uh before the flood yeah lots of big tours around this time and that came out pretty quickly after the end of that tour because i believe like b- before the flood that's the bob dylan and the band live album and that's recorded at the end of their tour in los angeles which was in march like late right. march of 74. of 74 yeah 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 so it was already out in august and yeah you know talking about a band being exhausted. I mean, that's like when that album was recorded. <laughs> Although they weren't exhausted, they were super coked up, I think. Exactly, yeah. One of the cokiest live albums ever. They could have released a show from January of 74. Like, those shows are awesome. And I and I yeah. like I like Before the Flood, too, but early mm-hmm. in that tour is, is pretty sick. Yeah. 74 also had the Doom tour that we love to talk about. Oh, yeah. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. So it was the season for... Big rock stadium tours with kind of bad vibes. Really, the beginning <laughs> of that. I mean, like, well, I mean, well, Dylan was like, Dylan and the band was like an arena tour, like all right. arenas, and yeah. then that uh, CSNY Doom tour, I think, was the first like stadium tour, like where you, yeah, they, like they, football they, stadiums. Yeah, they yeah. only played stadiums, and yeah, again, super cocained, Co- cocained. <laughs> Maybe I'll say cocaine. coked. I'll say coked out. Yeah, on that. Tour. I like cocaine. Say that cocaine. sounds more clinical. Could yeah, be good. Yeah. Uh, number one film for Pete's sake, a Barbara Streisand vehicle. I don't know this movie at all. <laughs> I do not either. Yeah, did not recognize it. Though you recognize the director. Well, I, yeah, I dug into it, and it's directed by this guy Peter Yates, who I associate with like a lot of great crime films from this era. He directed mm-hmm. Bullet, Steve McQueen cop movie, which is great. Yeah. The Hot Rock, which is a great. Heist film, multiple yeah, heists. With Robert Redford, <laughs> yeah, and George Seagal. Really, I think influence on like the Ocean's Eleven movies, like just sort of like a snarky, funny heist movie with like a bunch of you know cool guys getting together right. to pull a job. The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Robert Mitchum, yeah, Robert Mitchum, which I think was the film he made before For Pete's Sake, okay, which is a great movie, yeah, another heist movie, but like a much different heist movie from the hot rock, much more of like a sort of like a gritty downbeat seventies movie, just great, and then I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, like in the eighties, he directed a movie called Crawl, yeah, what is crawl again? It's like a science fiction y thing came out in eighty three it's like a star wars ripoff, uh. and I remember this movie because it was on h b o a lot <laughs> when I was a little kid, so i I saw. I don't know if I've ever seen it from front to back, but like I would see parts of it when I was a little kid and I looked it up I looked up some clips on YouTube. <laughs> it made me like want to watch the whole thing. It looks yeah. like pretty awesome. It uh it has an amazing poster, I have to say. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh it looks like a movie, yeah, you probably want to take an edible and let wash yeah. over you. <laughs> but Peter Yates, underrated auteur, made some really good movies. So dip into any of those movies right. if you want to 
check out something good. We're not going to talk about TV shows, right? Right. Let's yeah. just skip over I that. think we're done. All in the family, though. Everybody was glued to the yeah. news. They were just watching the news to to get the latest on Watergate. I think I think for our eight, for our next episode, we should talk about TV show because it's eighty two. I'm curious. What okay. Yeah. Would be the top we'll get TV something new. In, yeah. In eighty two, but yeah, we, in terms of like what else was happening in pop culture, we've already talked about Richard Nixon. And what was going on with Watergate, you know, we were in the full throes of that. I also want to mention Mama Cass of the Mamas and Papas died on July 29th. Yeah. I was slightly surprised. There's not really, like, a dead connection to Mama Cass. Like, she was a friend of David Crosby. Right. So there's a connection there. But from what I could tell, they didn't really interact with Mama Cass, which in a way makes sense because she was, you know, L.A. pop. Mm -hmm. And the dead, you know, were Northern California jam band i guess like me and my uncle john phillips would be the closest connection to yeah that's true yeah but uh unless she was there that night when john phillips wrote the song and then forgot that he wrote it <laughs> i don't know that there is a good yeah mama cast connection yeah she didn't roll with the dead and from what i could tell i mean i'd be shocked if their paths didn't intersect at some right. point but from what i could tell not a ton of mama cast grateful dead crossover she also mentioned in july of 74 Hustler Magazine debut. Okay. I don't know if there's any Hustler Magazine in Grateful Dead crossover. I don't think so. Speaking of Roberta Flack and BTO being horny in 74, I guess. Yeah. Hustler was 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 riding the zeitgeist of several songs called Feel Like Making Love. Yes, yes. Onto America's Newsstands. Yes. So, yeah, that's what was going on at the time of these shows. When we come back, we'll dive in to Dick's Picks 31. For a head-bangingly good time, dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the head-banging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Dick's Picks 31, August 4th and 5th, 74, Philadelphia Civic Center, and August 6th, 74, Roosevelt Stadium, Jersey City, New Jersey. We're doing a survey of these three shows. 
Yeah, this disc especially really uh, jumps around a lot. Yeah, and there's some interesting inclusions and exclusions that we could note on this first disc, but we should just dive in here because they they throw us in the deep end (laughs) with this record. 25-minute playing in the band, and it should be noted, this this didn't open the August 4th show. I think they played this well into the set. Yeah, it's at the end of the first set, as they were wont to do. And we get another plane in the band, another epic plane in the band on disc four. So we've got like an hour, a good hour of plane in the band on this yeah. show. And it's it's and it's natural for us to compare the two. It's interesting because the plane in the band that we get on disc four, which is from August sixth, ranked number five on heady version. Yeah. And I suspect that part of why that's ranked high is that Scarlet Begonias is is sandwiched in the middle. It's the first and last time they ever did that. Right. So the novelty of that, I'm sure, was very appealing for the heady version voters. But before we talk about that, let's talk about this first playing in the band here. Yeah, it really uh, sets the tone for the whole set. Uh, I don't know how you found it, but even though our previous Dix Picks was also four discs, this one felt like a much heavier meal. <laughs> like the last one, you know, was... You know, one show basically with some highlights from another show. Very songy, had some oddities, you know, had Bo Diddley, had some songs that they only played once or not that often. Flowed really well, felt like, ah, four discs, but it goes by in a flash. This one was like, we're back to like graduate level Grateful Dead with Dick's Picks 31. They kick it off with the plane in the band, which of the two plane in the bands is also like the much more dense I guess maybe is the word. Yeah, they're just they're they're like just shredding ass here for about yeah for most of the time, like without letting <laughs> up. Like especially yeah. you know like like Jerry, uh, Keith, and Billy are just like nonstop. Yeah, and it's a thrilling ride a lot of the time. I have to say that I was missing some dynamics. <laughs> in this. Yeah, some narrative. Yeah, right. It, yeah, it just felt co- like constant shredding. And it, yeah. it was like a little exhausting after a while. Like, you know, we, we've talked about the different plans, how you have these like longer plans, and then you get the plans that are in like the 12 to 16 minute range. And in Dick's Picks 30, we had two plans in, on that record that were each about 13 minutes long. And 13 minutes is like, it feels like a little short sometimes for a plan, but yeah. I will say that like, you know, I, I like longer plans. I'm not saying that they should all be 13 minutes, but like those plans, I think, influenced how I felt about these plans a little bit. Because mm-hmm. especially the disc three plan from Dick's Picks 30, I love so much. Right. I just felt like that grooved so hard. Everything they did made sense. It was so good and powerful. And so I just wonder if that maybe made me not embrace. I think I, I I think I'll say that like the disc four plan with the Scarlet is better right. than this first one. As much as I appreciate them shredding their asses off, again it just felt like okay when you get to about like the seventeen minute mark, I'm like <laughs> all right, I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired. Right. No, I, I totally agree. There's nothing that resembles groove in this version of playing in the band. So the juxtaposition doesn't really do it any favors. The disc four plane in the band has some really like tight, groovy parts, I think, in a totally different way than the Dick's Fix 30 plans. So that works in its favor, I think. I mean, it's it's like free jazz, right? It's like a free free jazz dead. You've got Keith playing the Rhodes, which he does a lot on this set. 
Which is cool. It's, it's really cool, but it adds to this like fusion Electric Miles vibe. Which I love. I love yeah, the Electric yeah. Miles stuff. I And I think there's other examples of them doing that in 74 mm-hmm. that I like more. Like, it, this didn't hit me in quite the same way as some of those other, like, epic plans do. Like yeah. Those fusion-y plans. Yeah, the thing, it, it just sounded like, like you say, they're all playing really hard. I didn't hear a lot of communication <laughs> between what they were playing. I mean, I'm sure it takes some communication to, like all play really hard and not just it being a total train wreck. And it's not a train wreck, but it is just like a kind of exhausting, like everybody really soloing like mad without a lot of coalescing into themes, which is kind of what more what I'm looking for. I, I, I want to introduce kind of a theme here that I was thinking about a lot with this set, which is, you know, by the end of 74, when the dead are thinking presumably by this point about taking a break. Like, who is the captain of the Grateful Dead ship (laughs) at this point? And is there one even? Like, this is a jam where I feel like there's not somebody to say, here's the direction we're going, other than just, like, as hard as possible. Nobody really seems to have an interest in, like, setting a new passage for all of them to jump onto. They're kind of just doing their own thing in their own lanes. I don't think that's true for this whole set. And I want to talk about, like, who I feel like is maybe taking the wheel at different moments in this set, because I think it's very interesting, because I will just say that I think it's not Jerry in a lot of places. Who is it? Who do you think? Well, we'll get to that, but I mean, I think there's different songs where different people step up and, and, and steer the jam. This is like an example of a jam where either nobody is steering or everybody's steering, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, But it it doesn't really ever find like a direction that is satisfying to me. But I do think later on in this set, we're going to hear some moments where, where, where people do step up. We have two instances on this record where it's playing in the band into Scarlet Begonias. And on the disc four, they go back into playing in the band. But it's funny to me because, okay, so... Disc one, you have playing in the band, goes into Scarlet Begonias. The Scarlet Begonias is smoking. Like, it's a super just funky, grooves so hard. It's yeah. such a good version. But again, to invoke heady version, the 8474 Scarlet is number seven on heady version. Yeah. Which is not on this album. Because <laughs> it's on this the only album, one that's not. Yeah. <laughs> they go from playing in the band into the 85 August 5th Scarlet. Yeah, and that that one is like way lower because eight six that's Scarlet that's in the middle of that playing in the band that's like number eight. Yeah. So the eight four and eight six are among the, the like the highest rated Scarlet Begonias according to the Heady version. The eight five, which is on here again, it's on the list, but it's like much much lower. Yeah. So instead of including the eight four version, which <laughs> it would have been out of order because I think. On the August 4th show... Scarlet is early in the show, yeah. Third, it's early third in the show. Yeah. Plane is later. So they, it's not a natural segue, but it, they're cutting two different... You know, they're cutting two different shows here at the beginning, so that's not a natural segue either, necessarily. That's kind of an interesting quirk to this record, that, that they're leaving this highly regarded Scarlet on the table. Yeah. But the Scarlet that they put on here, I think, is really great. And it made me think about how... Because I felt like both Scarlets here just hit a little bit harder than what I normally associate with that song. Obviously we are used to hearing that with fire on the mountain. The first time that they did that was March of 77. So like we're a few years away from that. I wonder to what degree, like was fire on the mountain, a mellowing agent for Scarlet. Cause I felt like, like the, like the groove of fire, even before they go into the fire part, it kind of makes Scarlet feel like a little more 
like a reggae type feel than it has here. That's what I was gonna say. It was like a reggae-fying agents. We're just making up a lot of verbs <laughs> this episode. Uh, yeah, Scarlet. Once it comes back in the seventies and gets paired with fire, it feels like it's a little. It's got a little bit more of that like islandy flavor, which is cool, obviously. Yeah, and it works for the song totally. But I remember way back in Dick's Pick Seven when we heard the Scarlet Begonias from London just a couple weeks after this show. I was like shocked at how funky the drumming was particularly like billy is just playing like breakbeats basically behind scarlet begonias here and it gives the song a totally different flavor but even that version paled to this version which i think it was one of the surprises highlights of this set for me because the jam part of scarlet here has that like intensity of like a scarlet fire jam and yet there's not like a fire yet <laughs> like it had it had that very very long prolonged like uh, elaboration on the theme that i expect from like a much later scarlet once it's been paired with fire uh, but here it's just self-contained into one song and yeah i loved it People are confused when they vote on Heady version because of how this show flips back and forth, or this volume flips back and forth between two shows, and the way they mixed it, it almost sounds like a natural segue from playing into Scarlet. You don't hear an obvious splice in the audio where you can tell that they're jumping to a different tape. Because yeah, this is certainly the best Scarlet I've heard, uh, you know, pre-Scarlet Fire era. Yeah, it's great. And we should also mention the China Rider as another highlight. Obviously, China writers from this era are always going to kill. Referring to our letter writer, assuming he's correct, I guess we're going to trust him that Dick really liked this this China writer <laughs> and wanted it to be exposed. Of course, this album came out after Dick passed away, so I don't know if there was some beyond-the-grave directive, you know, that that was one of the things that recommended this show, but that's really strong. The only thing that makes this China writer not feel like one of the you know greatest ever is that it doesn't quite match up to the Dick's Picks 12 one, I think. I don't know how you feel about it, which is just from a couple months earlier, right? That was June well, 74. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and again, like taking our letter writer face value, I, I don't think he was calling it like one of the best ever. I think he yeah, just yeah, said yeah. that he really, that he liked it a lot. Yeah. So it follows kind of the same path as that one. It doesn't have that great pre uh, vocals jam that the Dick's Picks 12 one does where it ha- like jams. Yeah on China before it even gets to the song. But it has the feeling groovy part in the middle. I feel like they almost forgot to play it, which was kind of funny. Like it had become like a standard part of the jam at this point. And they kind of like tack it on at the end of the jam because they were like in that great sort of China rider in between space 
just kind of charging ahead through that. And then all of a sudden Phil pops in with a feeling groovy for like the last minute. But so, yeah, I mean, this is this is a disc that tells you right away this is going to be a, you know, for jam heads. <laughs> jam heads only dicks picks and we should probably mention me and bobby mcgee is a dicks picks debut which yeah is... which surprised me could have sworn we already heard it <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like in this era in particular that this would have been a big song i mean this this originally appeared i guess in terms of like an album it was on the skull and roses record when that record came out that was an era like where a lot of people were covering that song and of course it's a song by chris christopherson who by 74 was really transitioning to becoming a movie star about four months after these shows he appeared in alice doesn't live here anymore which was the the first box office success for martin scorsese and i think it's fair to say that if that movie weren't a hit he wouldn't have been able to make taxi driver mm-hmm. so you know that movie kind of set the tone for that should we talk about peggio because i feel like we've been talking about peggio a lot yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because this Piggio fell flat for me. You know, it was so good in 77. I mean, we were really talking up 77 Peggios and chastising Dick for not putting Peggio on Dick's Picks 3. But I felt like Jerry was tentative on this yeah. Peggio. I guess I'm just used to the 77 versions where he's just playing majestic guitar solos, you know, during every instrumental break. And it almost felt like Keith took the lead on some of those instrumental, you know, like he, like his piano was more prominent on some of those breaks. So I was like a little disappointed. Like I wanted Jerry just to be playing these lyrical guitar solos and he doesn't really let loose. Yeah. Yeah. I know we were totally spoiled because on the Dix Picks 29 episode, I think we both went and listened to a bunch of other Peggios from May 77. So we just had this like template of like peak Peggio on our brain. And then this one, I mean, it's only, they just started playing it in 73. By my count here, it's only the sixth time they've ever played it. And it really just sounds like they haven't figured out like how we're going to arrange this song yet for maximum maximum power. Billy especially sounds... I mean, you, you, you said that he sounded kind of bored. I thought he sounded kind of lost. <laughs> like, he hadn't quite come up with the drum part yet and was just making it up as he went along over the course of the song. I mean, this is one of those points I was talking about. And like the Jack Straw right before it is another example. Jack Straw in 72 is fresh and new and they're just like blowing through it at 100 miles per hour everything sounds great this jack straw just sounded like kind of like tired (laughs) and i I couldn't really tell if that was an intentional effect like let's as they've done over the years like let's slow this down let's let it breathe a little more let's like give it a little more space for the music or if it was just like we've played jack straw 200 times in the last three years i'm a little tired of playing jack straw so you know it's this this just gives you kind of the highs and the lows i guess it's like here's some songs like china rider which has just bloomed with this more relaxed grateful dead vibe where they're just in no hurry to get to i know you rider and they're just gonna take their time and take a stroll through this middle part and it's gonna sound so beautiful and great and then there's things like the jack straw which it's still good it's still jack straw but it's it doesn't quite have the punch of a lot of versions from earlier in its time i mean the most egregious thing on the first disc is around and around <laughs> i know if they're doing a highlights package Around and around should not, you know, even sniff the final draft. Three shows. Three shows from August 74. And you're going to slip around and around on here, which <laughs> is like the weakest berry. It's the weakest of the berries. Yeah. It's the, it's the one that you want to hear the least 
I know. Promised Land, fine. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll listen to Promised Land. Trying to be good? Okay. You know, if you're going to tack that on at the end, that's fine. Around and around. <laughs> like, the way the dead play it, I just, I, uh, it's like, come no. on. No. Like, what, the, there is, like, a weird thing with the Barry covers. Yeah. Where they got to, like, put that in. <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe it's, like, the right length. But that, yeah, I mean, it's it's only like a five minute version. You know, I'm looking through some of the other the set list from these three shows. You know, they could have thrown on like a Black Peter. There was a Black Peter on the third night, or like a Black Throated Wind. I guess maybe that's too long. Uh, yeah, that would have been a little long. I mean, there's there was like a you know there's a loser, of course. There's there's all sorts of stuff. What I would have loved to hear, and I feel like they've once again you know insulted. A quasi member of the dead here because all three of these shows had a Sea Stone set break. So you had Phil and oh, Ned man. jamming out in the middle of all these shows. Just throw five minutes of Sea Stones on there. I, I understand listening to all 20 minutes of Sea Stones. It can be a little much, but you can find five minutes of Sea Stones. It sounds super cool and just tuck it in at the end here. I'm going to go farther and cut Jack Straw and Around and Around. Okay. Jack Straw. Beautiful song. I love Jack Straw. Right. We get a lot of Jack Straw. True. Give us 10 minutes of Sea Stones. Yeah. Cut cut those two songs. Like you said, that, that Jack Straw, it's not like a great version of that. It's like fine. Right. But Sea Stones, the novelty of it, I think would have been better. And around and around, inexcusable. <laughs> inexcusable. Don't, don't, don't. Like, it's a survey. Don't be putting the berry in there. There's yeah, no yeah, reason yeah. for the around and around. Going over to disc two, I think we both agreed that this felt like the least significant disc. I mean, there's some great songs on here, but like this Weather Report suite, I was actually like a little disappointed because I think that's the Dick's Picks 12 too, like where it's the Weather Report suite into the jam, mm-hmm. where it's amazing. Yeah. Like they do like a half hour jam and it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. So I think I had visions of that in my head. And this is fine. And it goes into Warfrat. You know, I mean, that's like the heart of this disc. But I don't know. Like, I'm more of a Weather Report Suite fan than you are. Right. Like, I've actually really enjoyed Weather Report Suite. I, I, I like all the versions that we've heard on Dick's Picks. I, I, I dig it. This one left me like a little cold. I actually, you know, and you may disagree with this. I actually feel like that dreamy section that it starts with, it, it felt short. Hmm. I actually. That could have went on longer for me. I don't know. Maybe that's gonna sound like sacrilege to you, but I really, I really like the versions like where Jerry's playing that psychedelic slide guitar. Like I right. love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't get as much of that here. Yeah, it wasn't a version of the Weather Report suite that was gonna convince me to uh, fall on my sword and repent <laughs> for all my bad Weather Report suite opinions over the years. Here, yeah, the jam is kind of interesting. Like it's got this sort of like quality where it sort of falls apart. Over, it's like it's like the jam unravels uh, post Let It Grow, and it gets very. It, it's almost like the playing in the band jam from the first disc, in, in sort of like a disintegrating way. Instead of just pedal to the metal the whole time, I, re- I really love the Warf Rat here. You know, like we talk about a lot, like a nice slow song that caps off a really like intense avant garde stretch of dead improvisation. And it works really well here, though. I think it's undercut a little bit by segueing into U.S. Blues. I thought that was sort of a strange mood shift. Yeah, I would have preferred going to Sugar Magnolia from yeah, the, yeah, it was than U.S. Blues. Yeah, but yeah, this disc is—I don't know. It's funny. I like the Warfrat too. I mean, I yeah. was thinking how in our early episodes, I think at some point I had made the argument that like Warfrat and Stella Blue 
were like as good as like Morning Dew as like that second set ballad that comes out of you know drum space, mm-hmm. which is you know I'll disavow that. That's one of many things I'll disavow that I've said <laughs> on the show. Obviously, Morning Dew is, is is the one, but I do. It was cool to hear those two songs on this record. I think they both come off really well, and again, both coming out of like jams. You know, right. Going back to your point earlier about some of the like early '70s songs starting to feel like a little tired. Yeah. By this point, like the Casey Jones, <laughs> I think felt it's a great song, but it right. just feels like they're so bored with that song. I know it, it is actually one of the last. I think it's there's only like ten or so versions after this because like it barely came back after their hiatus, and then of course was only played like three times in the 90s i mean again like the around and around like it's kind of surprising that they put this on here because it is like you know it's not a terrible version but i mean the whole like gimmick of casey jones is that it is supposed to sound kind of like a train that is going faster and faster and this sounds like a train that is like running out of coal (laughs) and like just creeping into the station it's so slow and so like lethargic said that on this disc loose lucy <laughs> might be eats, the fastest song <laughs> it, well i was gonna say it, it eats casey jones's lunch yeah because like <laughs> i know like i mean like obviously casey jones as a song right is better than loose lucy but like loose like the performance is like pretty fun and upbeat mm-hmm. and like if you were there i'm sure you were up dancing to that right. song and yeah. you can just tell i mean it's obviously a newer song so they weren't as tired of it i mean i think casey jones wasn't that basically Touch of Grey before Touch of Grey? Like, like, I'm just saying this as someone, like, I remember as a kid, like, that was one of the only Grateful Dead songs I knew. Was right. Casey Jones. Yeah. Because like, that was on the radio. Like, that and Truckin' were yeah. the songs that would be on your FM radio station. Yeah. It's kind of funny, too, that, like, we, we've already brought it up a couple times, but, like, this is a big cocaine summer in America, I think. And I don't know exactly the popularity curve of cocaine. But I felt like the dead were a little ahead of the curve in having a song that very explicitly mentions cocaine when this came out in like the late, like 69, early 70, right? I feel like maybe people really latched onto it as like cocaine got more popular, like, yeah, Casey Jones, that's a song I want to hear. They talk about doing coke. Uh, and so maybe by 74, they were like, ah, oh, God, we can't play this song. This is corny now. Everybody's doing coke now, so we can't do the song about cocaine. Yeah, I'm sure there were people in the fan base too that were like, 
rolling their eyes. Yeah. Maybe, I don't I don't know if they were like Casey heads, you know, like they were touch <laughs> if they were Casey heads in the seventies, just like they were touch heads in the yeah. in the eighties, you know, like, oh okay. The dude heard Casey Jones on the radio station, now he's gonna go see the dead. Well the other big uh FM radio hit I feel like for the dead around this time would have been trucking. Right. And, move, and moving on to disc three, half of it is trucking, basically. I mean, this is a monster trucking. Yeah, I mean, so we're going to count. I mean, obviously, you have trucking proper, which is about 10 minutes. And then there's the jam. And then there's like, they go into like a brief other one sounding jam. And then they do space for like 10 minutes. So, like, right. so we're going to count that all as, as trucking. And like the space is like, is maybe the most successful fusion-y type playing that they do on this record. Yeah, like I kind of like what they're doing in space more than say what they're doing on that album opening playing in the band, right? You know, like I really because it is like a similar vibe, but I feel like it has like, like you know, like you were saying a narrative. I would say like dynamics, mm-hmm. you know, where it is pretty spacey, but then they lock into something pretty funky and cool, right? With that, so I, yeah, I think that ends up being another highlight of this record. This is where it is so. What I was talking about with play in, where it just felt directionless, leaderless in some ways. I think you can also say that maybe about the Weather Report Sweet Jam to some extent. It just sounds like they're a little confused on where to go. Uh, I forgot to mention it, but the end of the Let It Grow Jam, or it's just called Jam on the Dick's Picks after Let It Grow. There's a part where Bob, at the very end, Bob starts playing the Spanish Jam chords, which is where that jam goes and Dick's picks 12 and it goes for another 20 minutes and Jerry just like stomps on it and starts playing Warf Rat. So there you, you hear almost like this musical disagreement happening in the band. This like clash. There's not like a flow where they're all like, yes, the next thing we should do is play Warf Rat or play Spanish jam. They have like two separate ideas and Jerry sort of pulls rank and says, Warf Rat is what we're doing. This trucking, I feel like, has much more of a direction. And I think it's down to the fact that in the jam following trucking, the track called Jam following trucking, first Phil and then Billy just decide to like step up and take the wheel. And it's like that jam after trucking is probably my favorite track on the entire volume because the two yeah. of them just like lock into a groove. So like it doesn't go off in this sort of fusion y directionless space feels like here is a heavy bass line that i'm just gonna play until everybody else snaps into playing on top of what i am playing billy is the first one right on it and starts playing some more of this like breakbeat style stuff that he was doing in the scarlet earlier on and it just like flies for like six minutes they stay in it for six minutes they stay in it for a long time but once he gets like the whole band on board it just sounds so much better and so much more organic than some of these really really out there uh, experimental jams from the first two discs
mentioned that like this disc, it's it mainly called from August 5th, which is like when our friend and letter writer, this was like his first ever show, which is yeah, really yeah. awesome. Amazing, yeah. First dead show. But um, I was also really impressed by how they go into Stella Blue coming out of space, because I actually think that's like a really slick segue where it works really well. Like, I think even more, it's a similar dynamic where they come into that and then they do one more Saturday night after that. But I I, I, I just felt like it was more satisfying on this disc versus disc two, like where they come out of that jam. And I agree with you, like that jam on disc two, it's not as good as the jam here in Truckin' on disc three. You know, and they go into Warfrat and then US Blues. But I, I just think that going from space to Stella Blue, it, it just works so well. And I would also say, too, you and I are probably going to disagree on this. You could say this, and I think it's it, it's just true, that like this progression, it begins with He's Gone. You know, And this was a common thing that they did in this era, where they do He's Gone into Truckin'. And I really like the He's Gone here. I don't think you like it as much as I do. But I, I, I tend to be a fan of those He's Gones, like where they really kind of extend like the vocal right. jam at the end. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, maybe also because I'm speculating baselessly that they're singing <laughs> about Richard Nixon in this yeah. song. Because again, this was uh, the day after he admitted that he participated in the Watergate breakup. So he was either going to be impeached or he was going to resign. I mean, yeah. I think it was clear that he was on the way out. So they knew that. And like you said, Bob alluded to that earlier in the show. So I like to think that this is like a Richard Nixon like, fuck you version of yeah. He's Gone. Yeah. Which maybe adds to it in my mind when I listen to it. But I don't know. I, I I really think, like, that being in the meat of the record, that He's Gone through the Stella Blue, it really makes for a nice disc, I think. Yeah, I mean, the He's Gone, I didn't dislike it. It just felt like a preamble to this giant, awesome trucking that was coming up. Uh, but I, I totally agree with you. We talk a lot about the dismount from a big jam. Like, do they do they nail it? Like the emotional tone coming out of like some really deep space. The Stella Blue here works perfectly, and I even think the One More Saturday Night actually works like great here as well. It has been a long time since we heard from Bob <laughs> and like, he's just like a perfect punctuation, even though it's a Monday night as we learned uh, when he's playing this. But yeah, it's uh, I just, I had no notes about the end of it. It like, just like from, from trucking on down, it works great. Do you want to give a brief shout out to the, the first two songs? It's Half Step, your favorite Grateful Dead song. Well, it's not my favorite. It's the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time. The greatest of all time. Uh, uh, Segwaying into It Must Have Been the Roses. This is something they did, I guess, all summer of 74, I looked up, so it wasn't totally out of nowhere. But, you know, there's a lot of big, flashy segues in this set. I like that it kind of just, like, subtly drifts from the end of Half Step into the start of It Must Have Been the Roses. And it's a nice little Jerry double. That was the start of the second set on this night, so it kind of eases you in. There was just a really nice flow to this set, I felt like. Like, whereas the previous disc was the second set of August 4th, and I'm a little bit emotionally thrown by Weather Report Suite into Warfred into U.S. Blues. Like, this one has just a really nice, easy narrative over the, the course of this entire set. So I, I appreciate this disc as a, as a standalone. I would also shout out the Big River on here, too, which I thought was interesting because you know, we were talking earlier about Peggio, where I felt, listening to that, that Jerry wasn't as... Aggressive's not the right word, but he wasn't latching onto the guitar solos the way 
that we've grown accustomed to listening to like primary Peggio's. And like with Big River, you know, this is a song that I've come to love just because it's an excuse for Jerry to like tear ass on, <laughs> you know, country licks and it sounds great. And actually on this version, I felt like Keith stepped up yeah, and was playing just blazing piano runs. And it made this Big River a little bit different than what you might expect from this song. And maybe that was, you know, part of the reason for the over-exuberant piano sounds apology in the caveat emptor. But <laughs> I liked his over-exuberant piano sounds on this big river, you know? Yeah. And it just made me feel like, oh, I want to hear more of that from yeah. Keith. Because he could totally do it, and it sounds great. Well, since we've mentioned everything, we might as well mention there's also a take a step back on this disc. <laughs> we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it, but it's a it's a weird one because both Bob and Phil are doing it simultaneously. A disorienting take a step back. Bob sounds angry. Yeah. He sounds angry on those take a step backs. All right. And uh, that carries over to disc four, where Bob gets angry at the end of <laughs> Eyes of the World. And it's unclear. I can't tell if like they ended this song earlier than they would have normally. I mean, because they played for about 20 minutes. So it's like yeah. it's not it's not like a shortened version of Eyes of the World by any stretch of the imagination. But like he screams at people for climbing on the fence yeah don't climb on the fence idiot yeah very angry and like you hear people yelling back at him there's like a little bit of a back and forth and it's a hilarious exchange because it comes after this totally transcendent eyes of the world and you know you mentioned how you felt like that trucking jam was your favorite moment Eyes of the World is my favorite Grateful Dead song. It's hard for me to put anything above this Eyes of the World on this album. And wouldn't you know that according to Heady version, this is the greatest version of Eyes of the World ever, which I was kind of surprised by. I mean, look, I've talked many times on this show about my love of 73 to 74 Eyes of the World. I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of like picking a favorite from that era. (laughs) Yeah. Because... My favorite is the one I've heard most recently. <laughs> you know, so in that respect, I guess I would agree that this is the greatest one ever, but I feel like I'll hear another Eyes of the World that just seems equally amazing. I should note number two on Heady version, the without a net right. Eyes of the World. Which is a Marcellus version, right? Yes, Branford Marcellus plays on that. Does a long sax solo, just absolutely beautiful. One of the highlights without question on without a net but yeah i don't know is this the best one ever i have no idea again i cannot pick yeah so picking your favorite child right yeah i i I, but man this is a fantastic version man like the first couple jerry garcia tar solos i mean i was just saying about how i felt like he was a little tentative on some of these songs not in eyes of the world no ripping ass man ripping (laughs) ass 
just <laughs> killing it. Just absolutely brilliant, man. Yeah. And it's like, dude, Jerry Garcia soloing over the As of the World rhythm. It's like, I can listen to that forever. Like, I yeah. never get sick of that. I agree with you that it's really, I hate like going through and trying to rank versions of songs necessarily and i don't know i also do not have like one that i could hold up and say no that's ridiculous that this one's number one because this other one is clearly better the only thing i could think of like through this entire version is that there there is nowhere in this like 20 minutes that i would say needs to be improved <laughs> like it just seems like it's like approaching perfection at every part of the song it's almost like i imagined like you know like figure skating judges like holding up cards for each part of the eyes of the world and there's like the jerry solo it's perfect you hold up your 10 there's the phil solo it's perfect you hold up your 10 they go into like that coda part with that kind of sounds like slipknot it sounds absolutely perfect everything about like group improvisation that I had quibbles about at, up at the top of this volume, they're a distant memory because they just sound like one brain playing this like beautiful flowing chord progression. Keith on the Rhodes sounds incredible. Oh man, yeah. That's... Bob doing little rhythm curly cues over the top of that. So good. So much swing in Billy's plan. I mean, you, everybody is top of their game. like that meme of like Vince McMahon you know like where it just shows him getting more and more excited you exactly. could do a meme like that for like yeah. like the size of the world like where it's like guitar solo is great yeah. Bill is great yeah. uh, you know Bobby's playing amazing rhythm play, uh, parts you know Billy you know just so fucking like the perfect tempo but then like where his eyes would like would glow like the, like the brightest would be oh yeah and, and, and Keith's playing like Rhodes yeah, like, like all that other shit, you know. <laughs> That's when it's just like, oh, you get the roads in there too. Yeah, there's nothing better. Now we're just asking, we're just designing memes for Ryan to build for us after the episode. Yeah, <laughs> got, I th- literally prescribing the meme that he's going to make. I'm, so I'm, you, I'm, I'm stage directing that meme. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but it does feel to me. I'm sorry that I do, I do think they cut it off early. I think it would have kept going. If it wasn't for some dude on the fence, it sounds like it kind of falls apart at the end in like a not completely natural way. So I'm wondering if this would have been like a 30 minute Eyes of the World if uh, it wasn't for, you know, that fucking fence guy. But like, well, then the fence guy, he's a <laughs> contributor to it because I don't think it needs to be any longer. I think, you know, yeah. there can be too much of a good thing. That's true. That's true. I mean, I don't know. I feel perfectly satisfied 
at the end of this version. I don't feel like, oh, I need this to go another 10 minutes. So Fence Guy, yeah, wherever you are, if you're out there, thank you. Thank you for being an idiot and yeah. climbing the fence. It is funny that like if they were watching this happen... Like a dude getting cut up by the fence or fighting in the front or whatever. Because doesn't Bob say something about like we came here to listen to music, not fight or something like that? Yeah, there's so, like, fighting well, going on. I don't know if there was like a fist fight too. It like it makes you think of that's like Altamont is breaking out around them, and yet they're playing like this magical, peaceful Eyes of the World jam. <laughs> like watching it. <laughs> what kind of what kind of asshole fights during Eyes of the World, man? You're you're watching the Grateful Dead in '74 play Eyes of the World, and you're like fucking fighting or climbing yeah. a fence like what's Who's, the matter with it? it's baby yeah. boomers man boomers right. they just didn't appreciate what was given to them just, right, right like they're just farting it away yeah but again they're farting it away but the fence guy did make his contribution by perhaps making this song its proper length so can't be too hard on this guy yeah i mean you're an idiot savant maybe you know like you, you don't know what you're doing you're an idiot but you made a contribution to the history of art yeah. By, by being a moron. Hey, folks, down in front, there's this fence here. It's got some sharp wire on the top of it. And you're stupid if you climb on it because it's going to cut you. Well, don't climb on the fence, idiot. Has anyone ever tracked him down? Is there like some <laughs> blogger that like the guy that the yelled guy? Judas? Yeah, there's probably multiple guys that claim to be the fence climber. Because you got the you got the pole guy from yep. Vanita, true, the naked pole guy. Yeah, but do we have the fence guy from Dick's Picks Thirty One? <laughs> I mean, there's so many Grateful Dead researchers. There's got to be someone. Right. Track down the idiot. Leave a note in the comments. It's like, don't climb the fence, idiot. <laughs> That's great. How many times did Bob say idiot on stage? Yeah, I mean, he sounds legitimately he, mad. Like, he yeah. is, uh, he's not joking around. This is not the, like, sarcastic Bob we're, we're accustomed to hearing. Uh, and again, yeah. Cop Bob, not Cop Phil. Phil's in the back, just, like, loving the wall of sound, I think. He's too happy <laughs> to have his separate sound system for every string of his bass. He can't be on card control duty for this one, so. So this is, like, the August 6th show right and they played this in sequence right i mean this is like was it eyes of the world into playing in the band and the, the show proper it was nuts there is a promised land and a deal between eyes of the world and playing in the band but it should be noted that both of these jams took place in the first set of the august 6th show this oh, is the, wow. eyes of the world is just like plopped in the middle of the first set i mean oh my god our uh, trademark like armchair quarterback here of the Dick's Pick series for this episode is that I kind of wish they had just released the August 6th show. I mean, there's great stuff, of course, on the 4th and the 5th. But the August 6th show is a monster. It's like a four-hour show. You obviously have the bulk of this disc happening in the first set. Uh, and then you got a whole other second set of music. Uncle John's band on this is the opener for the second set. You've got another huge trucking that has a Spanish jam in it. It has an actual other one. It has Sugar Magnolia and Sunshine Daydreams split up, which is another, you know, sort of gimmicky thing I like. Maybe the tapes weren't in good enough shape to release. I don't know. You can go in the archive and listen to it. Sounds great. There was a Matrix that kind of had like a really good ambiance from the seemingly very rowdy Jersey City crowd added in, which I would urge people to check out. But uh, yeah, I mean, this show is, is a magical show. I feel like I'm being a hypocrite because in the past I'm like, they should do a highlight set instead of doing the whole show. But 
in this case, maybe the Roosevelt Stadium show could have just kind of stood in for this entire era. See, I'm going to disagree with you on that because I think you could have pulled maybe more from that show for the disc two. Yeah. And then keep disc four the way it is because disc four is so great. And I don't really want to hear Promised Land and Deal between <laughs> Eyes of the World and playing in the band. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, like, Promise, like Eyes of the World and the Promised Land? No. I yeah. really like Eyes of the World playing in the band. The Scarlet Pagonis playing in the band. Uncle John's band. I mean, disc four is so great. Yeah, they really uh, nailed it with this disc. It really towers over the other discs here. I mean, it, it is so good. You know, the other discs have their high points too, but I mean, disc four is really the takeaway here. So I appreciate that. And I would also say again, what we were saying about disc one, pull Jack Straw, pull Around and Around. Maybe do some other shuffling. Like you pull US Blues and Casey Jones. And then maybe that gets you the sea stones on here. <laughs> you know, just fit in that sea stones. Whatever extra space you had on the disc should have just. We're, been advo- we're advocating hard for sea stones here, but like you know, put again, it put it in the negative track. Who cares? Like put it anywhere. Yeah. Some of these songs that they just felt, which are great songs, but it you know maybe their heart wasn't in it playing them on this in these shows. Pull those. Put like the weird thing on here that we haven't heard a lot of. I think that would be better. But yeah, that disc four is so good. I mean, the Uncle John's band is great. Yeah, yeah. It's a little overshadowed by what comes before, because I really think the Eyes of the World and then that playing in the band with Scarlet and playing in the band is so great. I mean, those are, I think, the two MVPs. I mean, number one MVP for me is Eyes, and then the playing Scarlet playing would be the other co-MVP, or maybe like MVP like 1B to 1A, <laughs> MVP for Eyes. But Uncle John's yeah. band is great. You know, again, yeah. you know, you were saying disc three flows really well. I think this flows really well. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking probably greatest individual discs in the entire Dick's Pick series, this has got to be up there. It's up there, for sure. Definitely yeah. this season. You know, I don't think that this is the best Dick's Picks overall that we've done so far. And mm-hmm. I mean, we've had some heaters, man. We keep talking about all the heaters we've had. This might be number four out of four. I mean, it's really great, but we've had some amazing albums before this. Yeah. Right? I mean, do you, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know if this, I'd put it above what we just heard in 30. I mean, 30 is so good. 29. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think it's a little bit the sound that we talked about. Right. The sound is not up to par with the last couple. Some of the performances, too, I think, aren't yeah. as, like aren't quite as good. Sharp. I mean, because like 28, that's 73. Yeah. Which is probably like my number one Grateful Dead year. Yeah. Just just ridiculously good. You know, look, the competition is fierce in our final it season. Is. We're going out in a blaze of glory here. And I'm going to say, and I feel like 32 is going to get short shrift. I'm already bracing to step up for Dick's Picks 32, even though I didn't <laughs> peek at the set list and Man Smart, Woman Smarter is on that record. <laughs> Oh no! So it's already you know it's already behind in the first quarter. Yeah. You know, got got a little bit of a like a deficit in the first quarter with man smart woman smarter. But going back to our point about disc four being so great, this might not be the best overall disc picks of the season. But if you're just going down to discs, disc four is really hard to beat. Yeah, matches up to anything. Yeah, I think I'm just getting a little like seventy three, seventy four fatigue. Well, 73, though, I mean, I mean, I think this part of 74, mm-hmm. you know, you can see them rolling into that hiatus a little bit. I think early yeah, 74 yeah. is different. Early 74, I think, is still the spirit of 73 
is alive and it's almost like that's like that's like a sub year of 74 right you know early yeah. 74 versus later 74 and of course there's great later 74 too i mean we've heard other later 74 albums in uh the dick spec series and this is really good too i mean look we're being served caviar every meal here so we're being right we're picking nits here Picking right. very small nits. Exactly. Yeah, we're not sending the caviar back. We're just uh, complaining about the presentation. Is this as good as without a net? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> I'm just gonna yeah. stump for without a net at the end here. Right. No, it's. A, I mean, obviously great. It was fun to revisit. But yeah, you know, looking ahead to Dick's Picks 32, I'm excited to go to the 80s. Yeah. We need a palate cleanser because we're just doing straight 70s. I mean, are we even going to the 60s this season? I don't know. No. no, it's all 70s. 32 is our one break from the 70s. So, uh, you know, I'm excited for it, too. I need to change a pace. I want to hear some Brent. I want to, you know, I've been to so many shows at Alpine. Yeah. It's going to be great to just kind of, like, put myself in that headspace. The weather's getting nice outside. Getting out of the goddamn East Coast. No more East Coast exactly. bullshit. We're going to the real the real people, the real uh, East Troy people up in Wisconsin. We're going to the heart of America. The heartbeat of America, the heartland. We're going to be on Highway D. We're going to go by Bong National Park. Go by the Mars Cheese Castle. None of you East Coast elites. Take a hike. (laughs) Go read The New Yorker. Go eat a bagel and, uh, you know, (laughs) eat your uh, avocado toast. We're going to go. We're going to the heartland of America here. Finally. Again, yes. last time maybe of our run. Yeah. And this is a show that you and I could have gone to if we were, you know, I was young. I was five, I think, when these shows were played, maybe four. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, was, I, w- I was three, so, uh, you know, in, a, in another life maybe. Yeah, like, you know, like how they had Muppet Babies. This would be like 36 <laughs> from the Fault Babies, you know, like Osiris. If you guys like want to have an animated series where like baby <laughs> versions of me and Rob going to shows sitting on the lawn at alpine valley yeah yeah yeah, this would have been the show this would have been the show so excited to do it going to the 80s it's gonna be great do we have anything else to say about dick's picks 31 nope let's put it in the books i feel i don't know 31 when we got to 31 i felt the end coming up yeah it wasn't until 31 that i was like we're really in the home stretch here we're in the 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 final stage of the album art we're in the screensaver era oh yeah i was gonna say like this is the worst (laughs) era of album art too (laughs) yeah let's hide this at the back yeah (laughs) it gets progressively worse as you go along Uh, i know and red and black still my favorite love the red and black and then Mm. the era like where you had like the lightning bolt i have affection for the lightning bolt Magic carpets. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's magic carpets, lightning bolts. But yeah, this era is awful. Just straight up awful. Awful art. And it's so funny because, you know, the Dave's Picks, great art. They really really figured it out for Dave's Picks. Yeah. But they just got worse with with Dick's Picks. It's a shame. They should remaster just for the artwork. Yeah, (laughs) they should. So yeah, yeah, we're we're nearing, we're we're getting close. We're going to do Dick's Picks 32. Then we're going to do our curveball. After that, we still have to figure out the curveball. I feel like we're denying the inevitable with that. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'll let you accept it. I'll let you accept the reality of what we're. I'm going have to through do. all the stages of uh, grief. Yeah. You're still like, oh, let's do six Neil Young albums for that. <laughs> or right. it's like, no, it's not going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You know what the reality is. I know. I know. I just got to accept it. We're not doing. Yeah, we're not doing six Neil Young shows. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're going to do one show. One album by a singular artist. You <laughs> shall not be named at this point. All right, guys. Thank you all for listening to this episode of 36 from the Vault. We'll be back with more talk about the Grateful Dead 
and Dick's Picks 32 in a few weeks. All right. Catch you later. Thirty Six from the Bald is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of Thirty Six from the Bald is RJB. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the head-banging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.